Dear Lord, as we devote ourselves to this endeavor tonight, as we open Your Word, as we enter into a study, Father, of Your Son's death on the cross, Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be active in our hearts to remind us of just how important this moment was and is to each of us. Father, we often study the Bible looking for life's lessons and answers to our daily concerns. And Father, You are so faithful to give us those answers and we thank You for that. But Father, we also know that there is something more important than us in the Word and that is Your Son Himself and and all that You've done through Him for the salvation of this world and of those You love in this world. And we thank You, Father, that tonight we have an opportunity to remember the sacrifice that was required for that salvation. Father, I hope You would... uh, Give us hearts to open up Your Word knowing the magnitude of what was done. To understand, Father, the the magnitude of our sin which required it. And to understand, Father, the obligation that now rests upon those of us who by grace have been saved, that we might now be worthy of that saving by our witness. Father, that we would work diligently in obedience to reflect the love You've shown to us, to the world. Thank you, Father, for the chance to study that tonight as we watch your son and his walk to the cross and his obedience even in that walk. Let us, Father, take an earnest effort as we study it tonight. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father, we we pray we would learn much. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when we left off in chapter 23 last week, the trial of Jesus had just concluded and uh, the necessary, uh, although unjust, verdict had been reached and If you were here with us last week as we studied through this chapter, you'll remember that even though Pilate knew Jesus was innocent, we heard him declare that at multiple points along the way, though he knows Jesus is innocent, nonetheless, he has handed Jesus over to the will of the people with a verdict of death. And you remember last week we looked at the fact that just because he acknowledged that Uh, He felt Jesus was innocent and therefore the crowd was at fault and he could wash his hands, so to speak, of that decision. Though he tries to do that, we know that in fact he could never fully separate himself from the error of that decision, from the sin of that moment. As we studied last week, the very fact that he knew Jesus to be innocent was reason enough for him to be found culpable for his actions. And so as Luke records it in verse 25, we hear Pilate has handed Jesus over to their will. And their will here, of course, means the will of the people, principally. This is the crowd that gathered at the time of the trial and stood before Pilate and called for Jesus to be handed over for crucifixion. But I think even more specifically, it probably meant the will of the religious leaders. These are the men who have worked so tirelessly, so, with so much effort to get to the result that they wanted, uh, to get to the point where Jesus was placed on the cross. And this whole time, as you remember, they were, they were working to, in, in a conspiracy to get Jesus charged with a crime, to get him found guilty before Pilate and the high priest. And then even in that last moment, as Pilate was looking for an opportunity for Jesus to be found innocent, they were in the crowd, manipulating the will of the people in the crowd. So they have been behind this from the very beginning, and it is their will more than any other responsible for this outcome. And so today we move on to the scene following the the trial of Christ as he is now led to the cross. And in the days that this account was written by Luke, the people of Rome, the people of of Israel, wasted absolutely no time bringing about the justice and and carrying out the punishment that was due. There were no appeals. I mean, think about it for a minute. Where, Where would you have appealed Pilate's decision? There was no Supreme Court. There was no appellate court. Uh, Pilate was the judge, he was the jury, he was the Supreme Court, he was the Congress, he was the Parliament, he was everything. And so there was no appeal possible. There was no one else who had any more authority than Pilate himself. So there was no reason for delay. If you had delayed putting Jesus onto the cross or any other condemned prisoner, all you ended up doing was feeding that person and housing that person for some period of time before carrying out the inevitable end anyway. So they didn't waste any time. And in fact, there was probably another reason on top of all that, as as we'll see later in this chapter, there's a tremendous amount of concern on the part of the Jews to have this event take place quickly because this is a day of preparation. That means a day before the Sabbath. And, And of course, the Sabbath here was on that first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That day being a Sabbath, Uh, that day being Friday, in this case, Thursday, now the day of Christ's death, they want Jesus, if he's going to die, to die quickly. 
to be on the cross and dead and off the cross before the Sabbath begins at nightfall. Because once the Sabbath begins, I can't attend to the body. And not only is Friday a Sabbath, but so will, of course, Saturday be a normal Sabbath. So you're talking about 48 hours when no one could touch the body or have anything to do with it or do any work. So there's a great deal of emphasis from the Jewish perspective as well that this event be taken, uh, take place very quickly. And before we get ahead of ourselves, though, because we're now uh, still looking at the early stages of this uh, death process, of the execution process, we need to go back into the text as we go now and join up with Jesus and with Pilate uh, as he is being led away from Pilate somewhere in the streets to pick up his cross. We're now in chapter 23 of Luke, verse 26. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. They will begin to say, To the mountains fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? In these verses, we're told Jesus is taken away immediately after the verdict. And in Matthew and Mark's gospel account of this same event, they tell us that before Jesus begins his walk to Golgotha, the name of the hill on which he will be crucified, the Romans remove his purple gown, uh, and they put his own clothes back on him. Now, this was the gown, if you remember, that, or the, the robe that he probably received from Herod, maybe one of Herod's own personal robes itself, a robe that denoted royalty. Well, they're done playing with him now. They're done with that stage of the mocking, so it's time to get down to business. They remove that, and they place his own clothing back on him. Matthew and Mark also mention that at about this point, the soldiers that are attending to Jesus will whip him yet again, I guess for good measure, although at this point he's so debilitated from the scourging and the beating and all that's come with it that it's hardly the case that he needs more of that kind of punishment. But nonetheless, they merit it out anyway. Now, all of this background that Matthew and Mark provide about the fact that Jesus is whipped again particularly, I think that helps explain why we hear about this man, Simon of Cyrene, about why we even know that he, he was involved, why he even had to be involved. Normally, a criminal condemned to execution by a crucifixion would be forced to carry his own cross to the place of his execution. Now, if you have in your mind a picture, um, perhaps from movies that you've uh, seen in the past, of, of a man carrying the fully constructed cross, uh, in other words, both pieces, the cross beam going, the horizontal cross beam as well as the vertical post, all, you know, kind of all together and it's leaning on his shoulder and he's dragging the cross behind him. If that's your picture of what it means to carry the cross, then I, I need to fix that in your mind because that was not the way it was done in Jesus' day. Usually the prisoner would only carry the horizontal cross beam, the piece of the cross that, that goes horizontally. So it would be tied maybe across his shoulders, maybe he'd be dragging it behind him, but one way or the other he would be pulling along just that single beam. Now, it would be heavy, of course, but it wouldn't be so heavy that an ordinary male, human male, couldn't carry it, even in the condition they would find themselves in, having been scourged, having been beaten before the crucifixion. And yet, here we see Jesus. He's unable, we're told, to carry the beam by himself. Now, the natural conclusion that we would draw at this point is that he can't do it because he's so physically debilitated from the prior beatings and scourging and the like that, he, that the extreme trauma of all of that has weakened, weakened Jesus to the point where he just can't do it. He can't physically bear the cross to the, to the hill. If this activity is going to take place, if this event is actually going to conclude, they're going to have to help him move that beam. Now, then the question becomes, who does it? Well, the Romans aren't going to do it. The Romans aren't going to lower themselves to doing the work required to bring this prisoner to the hill. Remember, part of the punishment, in fact, was that you were carrying your own cross. And now that that can't be done by the prisoner himself, the Romans aren't inclined to help him. And secondly, you're not going to see a Jew assist in this process because a Jew was at great risk of being defiled by contact with blood, by contact with anything unclean, by just being associated with this whole event. 
Any Jew who desired to stay in good standing was probably going to shy away from any opportunity to participate. And the Romans know that the Jews aren't going to be likely to, to, to want to participate. That's going to create a problem in, in itself. So at this moment, the Romans find themselves this opportunity to solve the problem. We're told that this man, uh, Simon of Cyrene, has come in from the country. Now, Cyrene is a, is a name for an, uh, an ancient land in present-day North Africa which is important because it tells us, among other things, that Simon the Cyrene was Gentile. Now, why he's in Jerusalem could be any number of reasons. could be that he had become a faithful follower of the living God and had come to Jerusalem himself to honor the Passover or to simply be there to worship. Perhaps he was living there just as uh, an expatriate, uh, as an immigrant. But in any event, he's coming in from the country and he's caught up in this scene. He, He just finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time, or maybe I should say at the right place, at the right time. And he's pressed into service, we're told, which gives us a pretty clear impression. He he was asked, he wasn't asked politely to do this, he was forced to do it. And he's now pressed into service in support of of this crucifixion and helping Jesus carry his cross. I wonder if Simon knew who Jesus was. Had he even heard of him? And I think the safe answer is perhaps. Jesus had enough notoriety at this point that it's not unusual to think or not, um, it it wouldn't be uh, strange to consider Simon having heard of the man Jesus, having heard of his miracles. But on the other hand, it's not necessarily true that he would have known anything specific about him or certainly not appreciated the fact that he was the Messiah. That that probably was more than we can expect of him. But nonetheless, the imagery here is, is really quite remarkable. I mean, you have Jesus leading the way, as we're told, Simon behind him, picking up this cross and following Jesus. Simon picks up his cross and follows Jesus. Does that ring any bells with you? Well, let me remind you, out of Mark chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus summoned the crowd, we're told, with his disciples, and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, this was a very interesting moment for this man, Simon. I mean, we know he was forced into this service, but don't let that confuse you about what was going through this man's mind. He was being forced to do it, but that doesn't mean that he understood that when it was all said and done, he was going to be released, that this was temporary. I mean, when you consider what was going on around him, did he really understand what was going to occur? Was he given a careful explanation in the moment about how it would all end? I'm sure he wasn't. So it's possible that he was confused or concerned for himself about whether or not he was going to be wrapped up in this execution or somehow he would be uh, caught up in the events after the cross was put together. You don't know what was going through his mind. So it's possible that even as he began to get pressed into service here and become a part of this moment, he had great fear. He had great concern for whether or not he should try to escape and run about what would happen if he were to go through with this event. But even if we assume for the moment that he wasn't terribly concerned for his own safety, I want you to look at the picture that's been created by his participation as God orchestrated these events. Because if you think back to Jesus' comments in chapter 8 of Mark, his comments to the crowd and to the disciples about pick up your cross and follow me, it was a statement that he made essentially trying to teach a principle that if it is your intention to be a disciple, you can't have any barrier to following in the footsteps of the Master. If Jesus is the Master and we are the servants or the slaves of that Master and we intend to follow in like manner after our Master, then we cannot have anything in our life that forms a barrier to our willingness to follow in His footsteps. We can't have economic barriers. We can't set family ties as barriers. And we can't have concerns for our own physical well-being or safety and use those as barriers for complete obedience, for following in his footsteps. And though maybe Simon in his own mind as he went through this process was not thinking about it from that perspective and, and perhaps he wasn't even a believer in Jesus, we won't know. But it is true to say that as God orchestrated these events, he ensured that Simon in his role here became a perfect picture of the principle of Mark Chapter 8, verse 34. As he picked up Jesus' cross, and with Jesus leading the way, he followed him. That picture, I wonder, was it lost on the disciples later? 
Because, you know, it's interesting, as we look at the description of the scene here, Luke never mentions the disciples. They appear to be nowhere to be found. He mentions the crowd, he mentions the Romans in the crowd, of course, he mentions the women particularly, but he never mentions any of the disciples. I don't think it's because he overlooked them. I think it's because they weren't there. So within this large crowd of wailing and weeping women and of lookers-on and and the Roman soldiers and so on, the disciples, the ones who've been with him for the last several years, the closest men he had as friends in this world, they're gone. They've vanished. Not even there to offer their tears. So think now about this man who stepped into this role, a role that the disciples themselves were called to hold to them for their own walk, a role they were all expected to live up to. This man now steps into that role and fulfills in a sense, the purpose that the disciples had been given, the role the disciples had been given. And now I, I take it one step further, and I wonder if the significance of this man's name ever hit home for the disciples later. Simon, the Cyrene, walking behind Jesus to the crucifixion, obediently carrying Jesus' cross. Meanwhile, you have Simon the Rock, who vowed never to leave Christ's side, even to the point of death, he said, that Simon is missing in action. Now, it's, it's easy, I guess, for us and for, and for me particularly to sit in judgment here of, of Peter. We're 6,000 miles away and 2,000 years removed from that event. And so we might look on Peter and, and make a quick judgment, but it's, it's so easy to do so. So maybe instead of picking on Peter, maybe we should ask the question of ourselves. Of, of if we had been there on that day, which Simon would we have been? Or even to say it this way, I wonder which Simon we are today. Are are we the kind of person who is prone to walk away from Jesus when times get tough? Because that's what Peter did. I mean, that's what all the disciples did, right? They walked with Jesus through thick and thin, but only up to a point. Now, they they all returned to their walk, and we know that Christ restored them and was faithful to do so. But but in this one moment, as Jesus is at at His worst in terms of of his suffering and, and, his, and his shame, when, when the world is turned against him, it seems. And the disciples in that moment, they couldn't stand the heat of the kitchen. They ran away. Is that the kind of Simon we are? We, we'll stay with Jesus in the sense of our walk, of our witness, of our testimony, but only so long that somewhere along the way, perhaps uh, the events of our life and, and, and of some aspect of our life, our faith just becomes an impediment to, to what we want to do. Or maybe it's just the call God's put on our life. Maybe we find some limit to how far we will go in responding to God's call on our life because if we were to pursue it as far as God is asking us to pursue it, it would force us into some situations and into some decisions in our life that we're just not ready for. We're just not comfortable enough with those implications of our faith. And those tough times are the reasons we step away from obedience. We vanish, basically, as the disciples did in our own witness. Well, I don't have to tell you that probably the laziest preacher in the world could preach a month of Sundays on on the topic of staying close to Jesus in desperate times. I'm not going to uh, go through that anymore with you tonight. But I do want to remind you of one thing. We're told in Scripture that even when we are faithless in, in this way, nevertheless, God is faithful because He cannot deny Himself. What, what that means essentially is because the Holy Spirit resides in each of us as believers... That Holy Spirit being God Himself, meaning that God Himself is resident in us. And that being the case, He cannot deny Himself. He cannot forsake us. He cannot be faithless to us, even though we are faithless to Him. Because if He were to do that, it would be Him denying Himself, which He cannot do. Therefore, if it is the case that we would always be His, we will always be a child of God, He cannot forsake us, then I want you to consider that if you ever find those tough times in your life when you are willing to affect, you know, essentially run away from Christ, to, to walk away from a faithful, obedient life in Christ, just understand that you will never leave you. And now consider one more point. If it is true that the trials in our life come upon us because of our faith, because the world will hate us because it hated Him first, because we are not like them, we are not of the world, we are told, and because of that truth, The world hates us. And because of that difference with the world, we find our trials. If that is all true, then it must also be true that if we run from Him, we gain nothing. We don't stop being children of God. 
And because we don't stop being children of God, we don't stop the persecution necessarily. We don't stop the trials. God doesn't stop chastening us as a father who loves his children. In other words, think of it from the disciples' perspective. When they weren't there for the crucifixion, did they somehow avoid the persecutions that eventually came? No. Every disciple suffered the persecutions that were coming upon them because of their faith. And they came regardless of the fact that these men abandoned Christ in his day of need. So, they abandoned Christ, and yet the persecution still came. And likewise, for you and I, we may feel though we have gained something because of our willingness to walk away from the demands and the trials of our faith, but knowing that God does not abandon us means we can never truly accomplish what it is we're trying to accomplish. So then I ask you, isn't it better that we would stand firm in our faith and in our obedience to Christ in these days now, and then let come what may, then it would be for us to depart from Him now in, in the sense of our walk and, and in, in the sense of our obedience, only to have to stand before Him in some future day and be received as one who was unfaithful. Which is better? I'm going to decide to stand with Christ and take the trials and be counted as faithful in the day of my judgment. Well, then Luke goes on to record Jesus' comments to the crowd and, and specifically to these women and by the way, it was customary in that day, you might find this interesting, it was customary in that day for professional mourners to follow a condemned man to the cross and wail for him on his behalf. And, and this is interesting because we wouldn't have anything like that necessarily in our culture today, but in their culture it was very common. It was considered, considered good etiquette that any man who would go to the cross or go to his death, or in the case perhaps of a funeral, any deceased man should have the benefit of, of wailing and mourning around him as a sign of good etiquette. I guess the closest comparison I might offer you today in our world would be the way you get Christmas cards from your real estate agent or from your veterinarian or from your dentist. I mean, they may be nice people and they may truly like you, but you, you understand and I understand that we're not getting those cards because they have this dear affection for us. It's a business issue. It's, it's, a, it's a courtesy in order to maintain a close business relationship. Well, it's in the same sense here that there were, there were these protocols and etiquettes in that day that would lead to men, or in this case women, acting as professional mourners on the, on the behalf of a man like Jesus, even though they may not have known him even, much less cared that much for him. Now, in this case, it's a curious tradition, but I don't think that explains this crowd, at least not entirely. I have no doubt that the mourning here is largely authentic. I mean, we know, for example, that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Christ, and others are in this group. So clearly there are genuinely uh, rem uh, saddened people in this crowd. But it doesn't preclude the possibility that you might have had a few of these professional mourners mixed in as well. And when you look at what Jesus says as he turns and he speaks to these women, the nature of what he says and the tone of it would suggest to me that he may in fact be talking to some of these professional mourners rather than to the truly sympathetic women who might have been in the crowd. And I think you'll see that more clearly for yourself here when we look at what he said. The words Jesus spoke, as we see them in, in Luke's Gospel, were this. He says, They will say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. That, that's where Jesus begins. And that's actually a quote out of an Old Testament prophetic book, out of Hosea chapter 10, verse 8. And if we're going to understand what Jesus was saying when he used those words, we really have to go back into Hosea for just a moment and understand what those words meant in their original context in the chapter, uh, chapter 10 of Hosea. So you, you, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to uh, chapter 10 of Hosea and we'll read through. Now, I don't want to read through the whole chapter because that's not really necessary for what we're trying to do here tonight. Uh, the main concern I have is to give you a flavor of what, the chapter, what chapter 10 of Hosea is really about and we can do that by selectively reading some past parts of the chapter, a few verses here and there. And when you put them all together, I think you'll see very clearly what the general tenor or tone of that chapter is. So let's begin in Hosea chapter 10, verse 1. Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he has made. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Surely now they will say, We have no king, for we do not revere the Lord. As for the king, what can he do for us? They speak mere words with worthless oaths that they make covenants. The judgment 
and judgment sprouts like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. Also, and now moving to verse 8 here, also the high places of Avan, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Jumping to verse 10. When it is my desire, I will chasten them, and the peoples will be gathered against them, and they are, they are bound for their double guilt. Verse 12. Sow with a view to righteousness. Reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until He comes to rain righteousness on you. You have plowed wickedness. You have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies. Because you trusted in your way and your numerous warriors... Therefore, a tumult will arise among your people and all your fortresses will be destroyed. As Shaman destroyed Bethabel on the day of battle, when mothers were dashed in pieces with their children, thus it will be done to you at Bethel because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. Well, I read sections of that chapter because I think as you see it all come together, though, though the details at places along the way may, may not be completely clear to you, it is clear enough that the general tone of that chapter is one of judgment. Even from just the parts that I read, you can see that this is a judgment against Israel that God is proclaiming for their unfaithfulness and for their sin. And in a day that the Lord appoints, we're told, they will be chastened, which means they're going to they're suffer His wrath their, his judgment for their national sins. And that judgment is going to be so horrendous, it's going to be so traumatic on these people, that when it comes, they will cry out for the mountains to fall on them and put them to an end. They would rather have that outcome than suffer through the kind of judgment that God is going to bring upon them in that day. Now, one of the things we have to understand clearly here is that this prophecy is referring to a specific moment. Hosea is not just talking generally here. He's talking in a very specific sense. And you would gain this more if you study the full context of the book and, and, and where this chapter fits into the book. But his prophecy here is, respond, is referring to the coming judgment that is due to the nation of Israel, which takes place in the time of tribulation. For some of you, as you may have studied the book of Revelation with me, then you'll remember some of this more clearly. But the nation of Israel is judged during the time of tribulation. In fact, that is the reason why tribulation exists in God's plan for the earth. It is a time of rec recompense, a recompense to the nation of Israel for their sins against God and chiefly for two types of sins. First, for their sin against him in the breaking of the covenant that he made with them at Mount Horeb uh, with Moses, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. He, he, is, he owes them judgment for their sins under that covenant. Secondly, it's for the rejection of the Messiah. So, for their sin of rejecting the Messiah and for their sin under the covenant, they will see recompense, they will see this judgment in the time of tribulation. For example, you can even see Jesus speaking very similar words about this coming time of tribulation in the book of Revelation itself, in chapter 6, right after the uh, sixth seal is opened in Revelation, these very same words are spoken by people in that day. So in their speaking of those words in that future day, they're actually fulfilling the prophecy that Isaiah gave for that day back in, when he wrote his words. So first thing to understand is the words Jesus just spoke to these women, when he turned around on the street and he, and he spoke to these mourners and he said, don't mourn for me. He said, mourn for yourselves. And he referred to this coming day by virtue of his quote, from Hosea, he is quoted now from Old Testament Scripture predicting how the nation itself, the nation of Israel, would suffer judgment for their sins against God. So he turns to the women on his way to, the, to his own death and he quotes these words of judgment to them. Since we know these are words associated with God's judgment, a future judgment to be poured out on the nation of Israel for their unfaithfulness, then we can understand now that the words he's using here are being used as a prediction of coming judgment for a similar offense to the nation of Israel. Now, on the one hand, they can simply be a reference to the very same event. Jesus could be turning around to these women and saying in this moment, because of your rejection of me, you should be mourning for yourselves in the sense that you should mourn for the nation, for the nation of Israel. In fact, he refers to them as the daughters of Jerusalem, which is a way of kind of indicating that these women were standing in for the nation in that moment. He was addressing them personally, but his reference was to the nation as a whole. 
So you could see this as Jesus simply making clear that the prophecy found in Hosea is yet one day going to be true for these people and it will come, as, uh, it will come upon them in part because of their unfaithfulness to him in this moment and their willingness to judge him in this way. But I also think there's a secondary meaning here, a more specific one, one that is a bit more timely, more immediate. He is looking forward to a day coming very soon when the nation will experience judgment in the sense of the city itself being destroyed. I'm talking here specifically about A.D. 70, when the Romans came in and destroyed the city. I believe that when he talks to the women here and he says, mourn for yourselves, I believe that perhaps part of what he's referring to is this coming judgment upon the city. Because that day of judgment, when the Romans come in and destroy the city, is a horrible day. In fact, it's not just the day. In the years leading up to that event, it is a terrible time for the nation of Israel. In the day that that city was destroyed by the Romans, somewhere between one to two million Jews lost their lives in that siege, men, women, and children. But that was really just the culmination of a terrible period of time for the nation because the destruction of that city was preceded by a nearly two-year-long siege uh, where the Romans blockaded the city, essentially, and it resulted in nearly starving the entire city to death. In fact, that city was so desperate at one point as, as the days kind of came to an end before, they were, before the walls were breached. The situation in that city was so desperate that women were actually willing to eat their own afterbirth as they miscarried their children. And, and I know that's a bit, uh, a bit difficult to consider, but, but it's a good indication of just how desperate the people were in that city, that they were so desperate for food. And obviously, any child that would have been alive in that city in those days would have suffered greatly, even as the entire city lived under this fear of impending doom and suffered through the starvation and all that went with it. It was a severe judgment, to be sure. And it is those circumstances that I believe, as well as those of the tribulation that Hosea obviously points toward, but it was the circumstances in that siege of the city that I believe may very well have led mothers who lived during that day to actually be jealous of women who had no children because those women didn't have to live to see the effects of that siege on their own children, the suffering that must have taken place in that city. And then having stated that, that harsh reality to these women about the coming judgment on the city, Jesus then adds this proverbial saying uh, at the end of his statement. And, and now if you're not sure what I mean by a proverbial statement, a proverbial saying is basically a colorful turn of phrase that it succinctly communicates an accepted truth or an accepted wisdom of the day. You might think of some examples from our own day. Uh, for example, you could think of uh, lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Or uh, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Those, those kinds of statements are proverbial statements. But Jesus uses this proverbial statement to emphasize the point he's just made to the women. And by the way, I would expect that the crowd understood this proverbial statement. I, I don't think Jesus is inventing it here. I think it's one that was probably used commonly in their culture, sort of like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. You hear that used a lot here. I think this is a, a phrase he would have heard used a lot, and so he just applies it in the moment to help illustrate his meaning. And this is what the statement means. He said, If they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Well, first of all, just understand there's no literal tree here. Just like when I say a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, I'm not talking about birds, I'm not talking about bushes. Those are representative of other things. They, they simply take the place of something else in order to communicate the meaning. So we're not talking here about trees. What we're talking about here is the picture of the difference between how a tree burns when it's green versus how it burns when it's dry. You know, a green wood, it doesn't burn very well. So it's a relatively cool kind of fire. It burns slowly without much heat. But if you take wood that is dry and you light it, it burns much hotter, much faster. You all know this, I'm sure. Well, the fire is the picture of wrath. It's a picture of anger. First and foremost of God's wrath and anger, but also of the Romans specifically, because God carries out his wrath and his anger on the nation through Romans in the day of the city's judgment, and through others in like way during the time of tribulation. So we're talking here about how the Romans' viciousness will vary. And what Jesus is saying here to these people essentially is this. If the Romans' viciousness and if their, if their mistreatment is as bad as it is for someone like Jesus, 
when, during a time when things were relatively good for the Jews. I mean, this is a time when the Jewish nation was in relatively good standing with the nation of, of, of Rome. They were not per, being persecuted by the Romans. They were free to live virtually as they chose within the Roman Empire. They, they didn't have complete control over themselves, but they, they certainly could practice their religion virtually without any challenge. They, they were free in commerce. I mean, this was a pretty good time if you were a Jew, even despite Roman occupation. And yet, if the Romans were willing to be this vicious to Jesus in the way he was being treated in the days that they existed then, well then, how bad do you think they're going to get? How, how bad do you think circumstances are going to be when the Romans are mad at the nation of Israel, at the entire nation? And if the Father in heaven is willing to pour out this kind of wrath, this kind of treatment against his perfect, sinless Son then what kind of terrible day of judgment do you think is in store for the nation of Israel when God chooses to judge them for refusing to accept his son's sacrifice? I would expect it will be terrible indeed. You know, when the Romans were finally able to breach the walls of the city in A.D. 70 and take the city for the last time, you have to understand what led up to that. We covered, I think, some of this in a previous week, but, but you have to understand they've been there for a while. You know, they came earlier in that decade to try to take down the city and put down the rebellion only to have their supply lines attacked by Roman zealots, which required that they retreat and then their general was killed in that retreat. So now the Romans have to replace that general. They send more troops down. They send the new general down. Then he goes back into the city. He sieges the city a second time. Now he stays there for two years, from A.D. 68 to A.D. 70. You have this general sieging the city. Now, you know, that's not a good time for the Romans. They're, they're basically camped outside the city for two years trying to get through that wall. And after all of that effort and after all of that waiting, when they finally breach the walls of the city, how mad do you think they are? How anxious do you think they are to put down that rebellion and be done with this and go home? It's like soldiers over in Iraq today. How, how quickly do you think they would like to be able to end that battle if they could so that they could get home? This is why we hear that as the Romans went into the city, they were merciless. Every man, woman, and child who was still in that city was killed, as far as we know. No one survived. Families were brutally murdered. The, the gorgeous temple that had marked the city was systematically dismantled and, and destroyed. This is dry wood indeed. This is the kind of mourning that the women should be prepared to have. Mourning over a whole city, over a whole nation, that would be brutally destroyed by the Romans in their wrath against the nation. All of it really just an instrument of God's own wrath against his people. And as I said, I think Hosea ultimately looks forward to a day in tribulation when that wrath will be exceedingly great. That's what they ought to mourn for. You know, Jesus is basically turning to those women and saying, you think this is bad? You think I'm in bad shape? You think I'm somebody you ought to cry over? Let me tell you, ladies, it's not even half as bad as what will be poured out against this nation for what it's done against God, against his covenant and against his son. That's his warning to the people. As he moves on now in the text, Luke goes into chapter 23, verse 32. He says, Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. Well, the scene at the cross here is, is a really a strange mixture of humanity. You have... The, the Jewish leaders still hanging on and mocking Jesus. You have the Roman soldiers now participating in that mocking. We know from John's Gospel particularly that there are those sympathetic to Jesus standing around the cross. And at some point, one of the apostles, John, joins this crowd because we understand out of John's Gospel that his last instruction to John from Jesus was for John to take Mary as if it were John's own mother, to bring Mary into the family. Jesus taking care of his widowed mother in that moment. But then you also have just lookers-on, general crowd, interested parties, whomever. And in this strange mix, in this, in this humanity that's gathered to watch this event, 
many of them not appreciating the magnitude of what was going on. You have to admire the, the mindset Jesus carries into this moment, the wherewithal he has, the, the, the composure that he brings to this moment. Now, I know he's God, and we've said that so many times, we all understand that, but it's never the case that we should forget that he was man in pure form, in, 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 in entirely the same way you and I are, but without sin. Which is to say that as, he, as he's going through this process, what would be in your mind? Would you be crying out, for example, things like, Father, forgive them? Would you be composed enough, for example, to have told the women on the road what you told them? It strikes me that he is working more than you and I could ever imagine to maintain composure, to maintain his sinless nature, as he must have felt tempted to do otherwise, even as he goes through this process. Looking at some of these details now, we're told Jesus is taken to a place called the skull. Now, only Luke uses that term in the Gospels, the skull. The word in Aramaic is Golgotha. And that's the word you may have heard, the Mount Golgotha. It's the word skull in Aramaic. Now, in the Greek, that word is cranium, which, of course, is where we get the word cranium. And the Latin word for cranium, for the Greek word, is calvaria, which is where we get the word calvary. So if you've ever wondered why we say Jesus was crucified on Calvary, it's because the Latin Vulgate version of the scriptures took the word Golgotha into Greek cranian and turned it into Calvaria. So there's a little bit of trivia there for you. So Jesus is taken to this hill called Golgotha. Now, it's often been repeated that the reason this hill was called Golgotha is because it looks somewhat like a skull. But if you've ever seen pictures of that place, you'll recognize immediately that it doesn't look very skull-like at all. And if I had to take a guess, I, I come to the conclusion that it probably didn't get its name from its appearance. It seems far more likely to me that if this is a place where you took prisoners routinely to be executed, that it makes sense that the place got its name, The Skull, from the simple fact that this is a place where people died. But be that as it may, the hill was outside the city. Specifically, it was north of Jerusalem. Now, that's much, much more important than how it got its name. That fact is significant because it offers us a specific connection to Leviticus 16 out of the Old Testament. Leviticus 16, I know you all are, are, are big fans of Leviticus. You know, like most Christians, that's probably your favorite book. I know you spend many hours studying Leviticus. So I'm sure you already know that chapter 16 of Leviticus is the place in the law which provides for the Day of Atonement for all the rituals and practices surrounding that one day a year, the Day of Atonement, when the nation of Israel was forgiven of their sin corporately, the national forgiveness of sin. This was the day God had set aside for the nation to confess their sins as a nation and see their sins forgiven as a nation. Sins both known and unknown. All those sins confessed and repented on in a single day with a single sacrifice. The ceremony or the rituals that are provided for in that chapter have the high priest beginning with two goats. And out of Leviticus 16, the requirement on the high priest was that he begin by setting aside these two goats and with lots, or you might think of them, I guess, as dice, he casts lots, and depending on how the, the dice come up, one of these goats will be selected for death, and the other one for life, although not for a particularly better outcome. But one of these goats is going to be selected for a sacrificial death, and the other one is going to be released outside the city. To begin with, the goat that was going to die was taken into the temple. Now, only the high priest would go into the temple at this point. The entire temple building would have been empty except for the high priest. And it was only on this one day a year when this would take place that he would enter with this goat. He would sacrifice the goat on the altar in the temple. And as he sacrificed the goat and collected the blood, he would then walk behind the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Now, this was the one day a year that the high priest or could walk behind that veil and enter into that place. And he would go in just long enough that he would sprinkle the mercy seat with the blood of this goat. And then he would return. And in doing so, he had offered a sin offering to God on behalf of the nation of Israel for their sin. Now, after that first goat had been sacrificed... Then Leviticus 16 required that that goat be taken, the body of that goat be taken outside the city and burned. Now the second goat would be taken out to the edge of the city, to the gate of the city. This is the one that was left alive. And the high priest would place his hands, lay his hands on the goat, and particularly on the head of the goat. And he would confess the sins of the nation while laying on hands on this goat. And it was a symbolic act. And what it, what it symbolized was 
the, the, the nation's sins being confessed by the high priest would be transferred to the head of this goat. And what he specifically confessed was the iniquities of the nation, all their transgressions, both known and unknown, were being confessed and placed on the head of this goat. And in this symbolic act, as the goat had had the sins of the nation transferred, if you will, onto the goat, the goat was then to be released outside the city. And the picture here was pretty clear. You had a goat that now carried, if you will, the sins of the nation. And it was released to leave the city, presumably never to return, and in so doing, it communicated to the people that God had removed their sin forever. That it was a permanent removal of those sins, never to return. Now, by Jesus' day, the national religious leadership, the rabbis of the nation, had added some tradition to the biblical practices that had been established in Leviticus 16. And one of those traditions was that they didn't just release the goat now at, at the edge of the city, out, out the gate, and then turn their back on the goat and walk into the city. That, that would have been the, the way it was prescribed under the law, under Leviticus 16. But a new tradition had evolved so that the leaders would go with the goat outside the city to a high cliff or, or some hill overlooking a, a fall of some distance. And they would push the goat off the cliff. And they would effectively kill the goat by doing so. And the, the thinking was that they have put to rest the goat. Now, uh, I don't know where, where this tradition came from specifically. I, 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 my personal belief is that maybe at some past time when they had the Day of Atonement and they sent the goat outside the city, perhaps that poor goat happened to wander back into the city at some later point. And when it did so, it got the city all up in an uproar because the goat had come back. So after that, perhaps the religious leaders decided we're going to make sure we solve this problem. And in every future year, they made sure that goat wasn't coming back. But in any case, regardless of why it came about, that was now part of the tradition. What I find so interesting about that is, even in the fact that that was not the law, but had become tradition, Jesus, in the way he died, essentially helped fulfill even that tradition as well. Because ultimately, it was this, in this unbiblical tradition, the religious leaders had ensured the death of the goat by killing it violently. And likewise, in this day, as they were putting Jesus to death, they were ensuring his violent death. You see, Jesus fulfills and pictures both kinds of goats. He is the one who is being sacrificed, if you will, on the, on the temple. His blood is the blood that is sprinkled on the mercy seat in heaven. He is the one who is atoning for our sin by his sacrifice. And likewise, he is removing that sin forever for those who believe in him. He is solving that problem, if you will, permanently. So he is like the goat who is released from the city. He is in his death outside the city. He fulfills that picture perfectly as well. Now, there was another interesting tradition, by the way, that attached itself to the Day of Atonement. And it came about as, uh, based on a verse out of Isaiah chapter 1. The, the rabbis had taken a verse, verse 18 to be specific, and had used it for the purpose of establishing a new tradition. That verse, by the way, out of Isaiah, you, you probably recognize it. Isaiah 1, verse 18, goes like this. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. This is a clear verse of promise to the nation about how the nation would be absolved of their sin by the act of God at some point. And the rabbis wanted to picture that absolving of guilt, of, of sin, in the way they released the goat. So a tradition had developed where they would tie a scarlet ribbon or a red ribbon around one of the horns of the goat before it was released out into the wilderness. And then every year after it was released, the priests would come back to the city and report that a miracle had taken place and that the, as the goat had left the city, that red ribbon tied to its horn had miraculously turned white. And in turning white, of course, it was symbolizing the fact that, as Isaiah 1.18 says, their sins had been changed from red to white. They'd been washed away. That the nation's sins had, in fact, been forgiven. Now, the legend goes on to say, for, for those who would still repeat the legend today, even among Orthodox Jews today, where that, where that legend still persists, it goes on to say that 40 years before the temple was destroyed, in A.D. 70, the ribbon, for unknown reasons, stopped turning white. As you know, 40 years if you count back 40 years from A.D. 70, you get to A.D. 30, which happens to be the year that the Messiah died. Which means that 
regardless of whether the tradition or the legend is true or not, regardless of whether these ribbons were actually turning white or not, in any case, you have a tradition here that really unknown, unbeknownst to those who, who reported and, and repeated the tradition, they incorporated into their tradition a piece, an, an idea that is actually biblically correct. The scapegoat that's being released from the city during the Day of Atonement could no longer remove Israel's sins after Jesus had done it once for all when He died on the cross. That's what Scripture tells us. That there can no longer be a sacrifice for sin given that the one and only necessary sacrifice has already been performed in Jesus' body as He died on the cross. Which, when it occurred on A.D. 30, it removed the need for any future Day of Atonement for the nation of Israel. So even though the unbelieving nation continued to practice that ritual, that, that Day of Atonement in the years after A.D. 70, uh, I'm sorry, after A.D. 30, it's interesting that the legend says that that turning of red to white stopped happening. Isn't it amazing how God incorporates His truth even into the legends that the nation of Israel carried forward? And now we reach the place in the Scripture where Jesus is placed on the cross. We'll cover a little of it tonight. We'll also pick up a little bit next week. But before he was actually nailed to the cross, we need to understand some of the preparation that would have taken place. First, he probably would have had his outer garments removed. In fact, we know in his case they were because we'll hear of the guards throwing lots, throwing dice to see who would uh, receive his garments. What we mean here is his outer garment. In that day, clothing was really a two-layered process. You had some uh, inner garments that were like underclothes, very loose-fitting clothing, uh, basically nothing more than like a robe that hung loosely over the body. And then you would have an outer tunic or heavier outer coat that, that hung on top of that that formed more of the proper dress of the day, and you would tie it with a belt. So when he was crucified, they had taken those outer clothing off, and left him with just the barest of his inner clothing. And given the condition of his body and all that he had gone through, it's probably fair to assume that those clothes were in tatters, which tells me that Jesus probably had very little, if anything, truly covering his body on the cross. He was virtually naked, which just added to the humiliation and the shame of this moment for Jesus. And remembering that he could only carry the, the cross beam to this point, we also have to understand that there was a bit of construction required at the moment that he reached this hill because the cross itself is not fully constructed as he shows up. He's, he's got half of it with him and there's another half waiting for him there on the mount. Now, there were a couple of ways that the cross could have been constructed in Jesus' day. One way was for him to, uh, to basically see the cross constructed on the ground, lying down on the ground, so that you'd have the, the horizontal beam attached to the vertical beam, and then the prisoner would have been laid on top of the cross, and then his hands nailed and his feet nailed to the cross. And then the entire cross would be stood up into place while he was hanging on the cross. But a second way, and actually a more common way for it to take place, was for that cross beam to be on the ground, but the vertical beam would already be, uh, would already be in the ground, standing upright, fixed, fixed firmly in the ground. So the way the two pieces were put together was that the, cross, the, the prisoner would be laid on the ground on the cross beam alone and his hands would be nailed. As, and actually the nails would go through the wrist, not through the hand itself as you and I think of it, not through the palm, but rather through the wrist. In, in Jesus' day, in the, in the word that, that you see used in your, in your Gospels for hand, the Greek word there really refers to the entire hand to include the wrist. That, that was the way the word was used in Jesus' day. So when you hear it spoken in the Scripture that they nailed him through the hand, that doesn't necessarily mean the palm. And in fact, if it were the palm alone, it couldn't have supported his weight. The, the nail would have ripped out through his hand. But if you send the nail through the wrist bones, the wrist itself now is strong enough to support the weight of the body. So it was the case that they were nailing really his wrists to that horizontal crossbeam. Once he was attached to the crossbeam, then essentially they would lift, or using ropes, they would hoist the horizontal cross beam up until it perched on top of the other vertical beam, which would create more of a T shape rather than the cross shape that you and I think of today. We can't be sure in which case, in which exact case was used here. It doesn't really matter. But in any event, as he lays on the cross and it is placed up and he is hanging there now, we're told that there was a plaque on top of him that said, the King of the Jews. This was not something special for Jesus, by the way. 
It was common in, in, in that day for the Romans to place an inscription above the head of anyone who was condemned to hang on a cross so that passers-by who looked upon that person could see the charge for which he was being condemned. You would see the accusation, that the crime that he committed posted above his head. So the thieves, for example, that were crucified on either side of him, they would have had written above them the fact that they had stolen, perhaps specifically what they had taken or who they had stolen from. Of course, the point here was to discourage any similar behavior in the future. We're told that, that above Jesus was the words King of the Jews. Now, in other gospel writings, particularly in John, we hear that Pilate himself wrote the words, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And when he wrote those words, by the way, the religious leaders protested that he should put that on the inscription. They told Pilate, no, you shouldn't put that. You should put, he said he was the King of the Jews. But Pilate says in response to them, I have written what I have written. It's interesting to me that though Pilate clearly didn't believe Christ for who he said he was, he didn't believe Christ was king of the Jews, it's interesting that God in his sovereignty worked through the actions of Pilate so that the statement that would be on that inscription was in fact the plain truth. Jesus was the king of the Jews and not what the Pharisees would have preferred, which was simply that he claimed to be king of the Jews. And as, also, as I've already mentioned, we hear that he is placed on his cross with the thieves mounted on their crosses on either side. And we'll study more about them here later as we look at the following verses in Luke's Gospel that talk about his exchange with those two men. And then lastly, we're told about these, these callous Roman soldiers who gather around the cross. You have the crowd mocking him and you have the Romans joining in in the mocking. One offers him sour wine, we're told. Really what sour wine was was a cheap form of vinegar wine that Roman soldiers themselves were given as a drink or slaves were often given as a drink. So it would have been whatever the soldiers had on them. They pull out this little vinegar wine and they try to offer it to Jesus. Now this gives us an opportunity to understand a little better about the scene itself because consider for a moment these are soldiers who are standing on the ground holding something in their hand and they're able to get it close enough to Jesus that, that it's reasonable to consider he might have had a drink if he had preferred it. Now we, we know that he refused it under these circumstances. And it's interesting to me that they are that close. What it tells us is that Though we may have images of a cross standing high in the air, perhaps five or ten feet off the ground, where you have Jesus' feet maybe at your head level if you're standing next to the cross, that's not the case at all. Jesus' feet may have only been a few inches off the ground. The cross itself may have been barely taller than you and I standing up. Jesus may have been virtually eye to eye with those who are standing around watching him. Many crosses were only big, just built big enough to hold the man and stand him up off the ground. There really was no point in having it any higher. And then a few other details as we study Luke's Gospel here. You have Jesus compassionate to the end, as we mentioned, sinless to the end, stating to the Father, forgive them. You know, only Luke captures this line. And it draws an interesting question in my mind. Who is he praying this prayer for? I mean, it's a prayer if you want to think of it in those terms. It's, it's an appeal to the Father on behalf of someone. I mean, it seems only natural for us to conclude that if Jesus asks the Father for forgiveness on behalf of someone, wouldn't we expect that it would be granted? Isn't that Christ's role? The intercessor, the one who intercedes on behalf, the one, the one who is our high priest, the one who is our intercessor to God? So, who is it he's asking for this Prayer for? Who is he asking for forgiveness for? And whoever it was, can't we assume that perhaps it was granted? Perhaps it was for the Roman soldiers themselves who were at the cross. We know that at the end of the crucifixion, there's a centurion, as we'll read later, who comes to know Jesus as the Messiah in the moment that he dies because of the circumstances of the moment and perhaps because of the answer to prayer that, that Christ says on his behalf. Then there's the crowd. You know, the, the crowd, as we'll see as well, they seem to have a change of heart, or at least some of them do, as they leave the scene of Jesus' death, in part as well because of the scene itself and, and all that transpires, but maybe as well because God the Father answers the Son's prayer for forgiveness of those who look upon that scene, who do not understand what is going on. And in the midst of all this compassion and, and, and in the, the sneering and of the hatred, the crowd makes this remarkable demand. And I know that, and you know as you read the text with me, they look up at the Messiah and they demand that he should save himself. And we understand that they don't fully expect him to do so. This is a mocking 
statement. This is not a statement that is said with any true expectation that Jesus is going to actually save himself. They don't think he can do it. But even though it's not meant earnestly, nevertheless, it's still a ridiculous statement. It's a, it's a completely nonsensical statement. I mean, consider this. If it is honestly the case that we could expect a true test of Jesus' Messiahship to be whether or not he could save himself by getting off the cross, if that is in fact a true test of whether he is the Messiah, well then it would suggest to me that he must be a pretty pathetic Messiah to even have allowed himself to be up on that cross in the first place. I mean, if the true measure of his claim to be Messiah is to be found in his ability to overcome the will of these people, to thwart their plans, to put him to death, then wouldn't it stand to reason that that the point at which he should have shown that power would have occurred long before he reached this moment? When 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 he's up on the cross, approaching death? I mean, if the true test was he could thwart the will of these people, wouldn't the right time to show that to have been back in the the false trials and to have stopped the trial and to have prevented the verdict? Wouldn't it have been before all the beatings, before the scourging? Wouldn't he have stopped the nails from even going into his, his hands in the first place? I mean, wouldn't he have avoided the entire scene by now? If that's truly going to be your test of whether Jesus was the Messiah, well, he didn't save himself. You know, he didn't get off that cross, so he can't be the Messiah. If that's truly your test, well, you should have started long ago. You should have said, well, you can't be a Messiah if you even allow these events to take place. It's not even a logical thing to say in the moment. But more importantly, it completely misses the point. The real test of Messiahship is either your ability to avoid this entire debacle, to avoid this entire opportunity to to rule from the beginning, to show your power from the very start. But then again, we know that that's something that, though Jesus was indeed capable of doing, and and for for that matter, he was even prepared to do at one point. If you remember in the garden, he asked the Father, please take this cup from me if it be your will. He certainly was willing to stop this process if the Father had let him. He was prevented from doing so because of the sin of Israel and the sin of all men. And therefore, if he is prevented from taking an action that he, he could have taken because of the sin of men and because of the Father's necessity that Christ die on the cross and his obedience to the Father drove him forward in this process, if that's going to have to happen, then the only other test of his Messiahship that would be possible is for him to remain on the cross until death and to put aside the desire to get off the cross knowing he could do so, and then to follow it by doing something that no mere man could ever do, to return from the dead. To leave that cross, though it it certainly would have been impressive to someone, was not the true test of his power. The true test of his power as Messiah was to stay on the cross, even though he had the power to leave it. And then, in letting death take its course, to conquer death for all time by rising from the dead. That's the true test of his Messiahship. That's the thing on which we base our faith in Christ. That he would die nonetheless being God and then prove it by raising from the dead. And in winning that victory over death, he proves something much more important to you and me than merely his power as God for himself. Because if he could save himself as a man on the cross, if he could have literally ripped those nails out of the wood with his hands and stood on the ground again and healed his body, he certainly would have impressed me and he would have impressed that crowd. But any man who can die and raise himself from the dead not only impresses me, but he can save me. For if he can save himself from death, then he can certainly be trusted to have the same, thing, to have the same power to do that for you and I. And that is the basis of our faith. That's the basis of our Christian faith and trust in Jesus. More than anything else you can point to in the Gospel, it is the very fact that he would remain on the cross and die, though he didn't have to for his own sake. And yet, in doing so, could rise from the dead later and in doing so prove his power of life over death. And with that power now comes a promise to those who believe in him. As he can raise himself from the dead and in doing so prove himself to be God, he can now extend that to you and I and say, likewise, you will be raised from the dead. In fact, all men and all women will one day be raised from the dead. And the only question remaining is, 
what comes of us after we are raised. To trust in Him now, to understand that He has that power now, and to believe in Him for that power now, is to gain eternal life upon our resurrection. To fail in our willingness to trust Him in that regard, though, is to guarantee ourselves eternal separation from God in the lake of fire as just reward, as just punishment for the sins that we have committed. It is just that simple. And that's the promise He offers to anyone who would place His sins upon Jesus. In the same manner as Jesus or as the nation would place its sins on that goat once a year and send that goat outside the city. Uh, the scapegoat, by the way, if you've ever heard the term scapegoat, it comes from Leviticus 16. That's the Jewish word given to name that second goat that was sent outside the city. He was the scapegoat for the nation of Israel. Just as that goat went out every year, Jesus has gone out once and for all from the city and died a death for you, for you and for me. And if you are willing to place your sin on Him, a sin you carry even now, a sin you and I will carry to the day we leave this body. That sin nonetheless can be placed on Jesus once and for all. He is faithful to carry it away, never to return. And in having taken the punishment that that sin deserved, He is now free to raise us to eternal life without fear of punishment. That is a deal, my friends, that all of us should be anxious to take just as the nation was anxious to see, the nation of Israel was anxious to see their day of atonement one day a year. Because to recognize our sin and to be, to I pray that all of us have taken that step. And for those who haven't, I pray that in this moment now as we end this study, you would give consideration to appealing to God for the salvation He offers through Jesus Christ. Today is a day appointed for salvation for you if you would only receive that Messiah. Pray with me as we end the study tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You so much for the sacrifice of Your Son on the cross. Our thank Yous, Father, could never possibly equal the debt that we owe You for that sacrifice. But Father, it is a debt that You freely take upon Yourself. It was a debt, Father, that You paid on the cross through Your Son. And we now, Father, receive it joyfully. Those who may be hearing of this opportunity for the very first time, whose life, Father, have been marked by sin and the hopelessness that sin brings, I pray, Father, that even as we finish this study tonight, in their heart they might seek You. They might turn to Your Son and say, Jesus, save me from my sin as I know You can. And in that turning away from their sin and the life apart from You and toward the truth of the Gospel and the salvation Your Son offers, Father, I pray that You would be faithful as You promised to be, that You would raise them to eternal life in their day. And You would give them the hope, even now, of the knowledge of that coming salvation, that day of of, of glorification, Father, to know that they are now once and for all washed clean of their sin and to be soon re reunited with You because of that sacrifice that You had on the cross. Because of Your sacrifice on the cross. Father, I praise and thank You so much for the opportunity to study the Word tonight in this way. To be reminded of the cross and to be reminded of Jesus' sacrifice. May we come back next week, if it be Your will, and continue this study. And may You bring even more, Father, to hear this Word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.